everybody, and welcome to Don't Quit Your Day Job. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for your support. Once again, I am with uh, Mr. Mark Tremoglio. Uh, Mr. Tremoglio <laughs> lives in, in L.A. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry, Mark. Did I butcher your last name? No, that never happens, especially <laughs> not on stage. <laughs> I went um, by Mark T for a lot of years. <laughs> Mark T, yeah, okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's way, way easier. Uh, thanks for, for, for coming back on the show, brother. Always appreciate it, um, listening to all of your awesome stories. Um, for this episode, I would like to start... Uh, with the idea of living in L.A. in the 90s, right? Because you were there starting in, in 87 or so and uh, lived the life of dreams in, in Los Angeles. So I'm going to name a couple of things, and let's hear if you visited or know about these things and what your experience was uh, you know, back then, which is like 30 years ago now, because we're old, nice. old and decrepit. Uh, <laughs> I might have to retrieve some brain cells to answer this, yes, though. exactly. <laughs> so let's start with uh, Tower Records on Sunset. Love Tower Records. It used to be one of my favorite spots to go to. I lived right off of Hollywood Boulevard, and I'd hop on my skateboard, and I'd skate down Hollywood Boulevard, then I'd skate down La Brea to Sunset, and then I'd skate Sunset all the way down to Tower Records, and I'd spend like two hours just from the books to the magazines to the albums to the CDs to the people who would shop in there that I would see, you know, from Mike Tyson to George Duke to, um, you know, who knows who else. I saw so many rock stars in that story it used to trip me out. And did you, so, ever, yeah. like, did you ever fanboy anybody? Go up and say, hey, uh, can I get your autograph or whatever? I think I'm just too shy for it. So, I mean, there's people that I was like, God, I kind of wish. I think the only guy I ever really fanboyed and got his autograph was George Lynch. That that story I told you about the whiskey where he stole my friend Singer. Yeah, like, that was the you, only. Yeah, he gave you a great autograph. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so, at Tower Records, were you shopping? So, I can't even remember now, 90s. Was it the end of cassettes in the beginning of CDs or what were you shopping for at the time or were you just looking around? No, I was getting uh, cassettes. I didn't have a CD player until like the late 90s and you know I had a, a friend that worked there and he'd always hook me up and uh, you probably I don't I don't know if you knew him but you know uh, Pete Kitts who uh, later took changed his name to Rivers Cuomo he uh -huh. was in a, he yes. was in a band out in LA and we were buddies back in Connecticut. I used to go to his house and jam he'd have his Yngwie posters on the wall and his Marshall stack set up and he and I'd go, we'd play for a bunch of hours and his mom would bring us food. And so when I moved to LA, he would call me and say, should I move out there? Is it cool? What do you think? And I was like, come on out, man. So he moved out here and then he got a job at Tower Records. And apparently from what he told me was that's where he made his contacts. That's where he met people in the industry and was able to go, here's my demo and kind of get his feet wet. And, you know, the last time I saw him, he had quit Zoom. And I hadn't seen him for a couple months, and I go, hey, man, what's going on? I ran into him on Hollywood Boulevard, as a matter of fact. And he goes, uh, he goes, I got this band, Weezer. We just got a record deal, man. And he goes, We're, I think Rick Okasik is going to produce our record. I go, get out, dude. That is so cool. He goes, yeah, man, wish me luck. I hope everything works out. I was like, yeah, good. Last I ever spoke to him. <laughs> I've reached out a few times, but apparently he's not a big fan of 
reconnecting with old acquaintances, so he blows everybody off that tries to get in touch with him. So, whatever. I definitely have read stories about him really trying to downplay his roots and like his interest in being a metal guitar player and all of that. He really doesn't want anybody to know about that background. Um, yeah, the yeah the biggest palm tree for a hair that was like bleach blonde, and it was like like when you look at those palm trees and it's got that that's that that foliage everywhere. That was his hair. I mean, he could shred like. I mean, he knew I was an Ingve fan, but I couldn't really play a lot of Ingve stuff. I knew like one solo, and he knew all these Ingve licks. So he didn't really know the George Lynch, Warren D. Martini kind of stuff. So I went over and I would show him that stuff, and he would show me the the Ingve stuff. And we had a mutual friend named Tony Botticello, who was a great guy, and he had a barn. And every Saturday, Friday night, Sundays sometimes, Thursday sometimes, everybody. That would be the gathering place for all the local bands. We'd all go there and hang out. There was like four or five different bands. And, you know, their band at the time was called Avant Garde. And they were totally in the scene of, you know, if I was going Friday night, I know his band would be there. Another band would be there. My friend Tony's band. And we'd all play. We'd all get up there and jam. And it used to be such a blast, you know. I could hop on the drums or the bass or squeak out some bad vocals or just play guitar, you know? Somebody go, oh, they're doing docking. Let, let Tremelia do it. He knows how to play those glitch licks. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> that sounds uh, amazing. All from, from Tower Records. And Tower Records is not there anymore. Is that right? It is now a, a Gibson showroom. So Gibson Guitars bought it, uh, or at least rents the property, and they have like a showroom set up. I'm saying that in air quotes. Because basically it's a place where they'll do videos with like their featured artists and they'll, you know, you can, I, I think you can make appointments and go in there and tour it. But it's, it's basically just like a, a glorified custom shop kind of thing. And okay. I've driven by it for three years now and I've never gone in or, but I, I know people have done videos there. And Jared, my friend Jared James Nichols, who's a great guitar player, he, he's done a few like uh, Gibson videos there. Cool, cool. Uh, what about... The Hamburger Hamlet. Have you eaten hamburgers at the Hamburger Hamlet? <laughs> oh, I've eaten there many a times. I mean, I live right off of Hollywood Boulevard. So, you know, the, the funny thing is, like, we were so poor back when I first moved there that that was like, if you had, like, your mom sent you an extra hundred bucks, you'd be like, let's go to Hamburger Hamlet, get some, like, get the nice meal. You know, like, <laughs> we weren't going to go to Beverly Hills. Our nice meal was down Hollywood Boulevard across from the Chinese theater. <laughs> Oh my god! And were the hamburgers special? Were they? Was it like better than McDonald's or whatever? Or was it? Uh, it was better than McDonald's, but it was just—I think it had a name, you know. Like it was on Hollywood Boulevard, and it was the Hamburger Hamlet. You know, tourists went there, and it was the—it was the nicest, nicer restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. Probably Muso and Frank's is the nicest, but I've never been to that one, even though I've lived in LA for thirty odd years. Same, same with my wife. She's been out there since 88, and she's never gone, and, like, we uh -huh. love that culture, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, like, we love, like, living that stuff, and we still never gone to Muse on Frank, so, anyways. <laughs> uh, were you a fan, or are you a fan of K-Rock? Is that a station that you listen to? Are you a radio guy? I know that K-Rock is famous, like, sort of everywhere. Um, what's your experience there? Well, I, I love K-Rock. Um, I definitely listen to it. I, I was a huge fan of Kevin and the Bean. Kevin and Bean, the morning show, which they unceremoniously like fired those guys. Well, Kevin, anyways, Bean had quit, and Kevin was carrying on with the show, and 
COVID hit, and that week they they fired him. <laughs> it wow, was like harsh. so. Yeah, so I haven't listened to K Rock since, to be honest. But that was definitely like it was the cooler station. You know, you had KNAC, which was the metal station, which everybody loved. But once '92 hit and it went under, there was like almost nothing else to turn to. You know, you had. Uh, um, KLOS 95.5, which is pretty famous too. It's been around for years. Jim Ladd had a show on there, and Steve Jones has Jonesy's jukebox on there right now. So there's, you know, it, it's still kind of cool at, at times. But you know, the playlist—it's what kills me. It's like I don't need to hear Journey, Kansas Sticks, and you know, ACDC, and now Metallica. You know, like that's their playlist, and it's the same. And it's like, dude, if I hear more than a feeling on that one more time, or you know, or it's like, no, enough. <laughs> so K Rock, they mix it up, they play some newer rock, and you know, I have a semi in there because my wife is in the radio business, and her friends work for K Rock, so they okay. they hook us up for events, so we get to go to all the concerts when they do like their their weenie roast, which is like you know, they'll have ten bands and a surprise band. When we get to go to those shows and you know, kind of get the hook up on that, so it's fun. So I got to see like Soundgarden and Chili Peppers and Coldplay. And I've seen a whole ton of bands I probably never see. One I loved, Garbage. I've seen twice, which I love that band. Now they turned into one of my favorites, and you know, so that's, saw that's Pennywise. Cool. <laughs> okay, how about David Woodruff's car? So David Woodruff is apparently an actor who used to drive around. Come on, you can't live in L.A. in the late 80s and 90s and not know who he is. I mean, I, I saw it everywhere. I saw it all the time. You know, I mean, he would because the thing is, is he would drive it up and down Hollywood and Sunset trying to be noticed. So you couldn't not see it. You know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it was insane. I think, you know, I don't know whatever happened to him, but I remember reading about him in like the late 90s that he actually got a couple jobs and yada yada, but I haven't seen the car since then. So he's just you some random dude trying to make it as an actor and he would just drive around LA, right? Is that just the story? That's it? Well, the story is his car was had uh, like, I can't remember if it was like taped on cardboard written on. <laughs> Or what? But he had signs all over his car that said David Woodruff actor for hire. It had his phone number on there and his headshot on there. And it was on the passenger door. It was on the the driver's door. It was on the trunk. He had a sign on the roof of it. He had it on the front of his car, written on the hood. So like you could not see, you know, actor for hire. And here's my phone number. So, I mean. Look, that's what you got to do sometimes in this city is you just got to, like, squeaky wheel. What does that say? Squeaky wheel gets the grease, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, one more that I know you know about, and this kind of segues into the next thing that I want to talk about. And uh, But let's start with Guitar Center and Sam Ash in, in Hollywood. I mean, being a guitar player, late 80s, early 90s, these were places that everybody would go, right? Absolutely. Well, so not Sam Ash, though. Sam Ash wasn't actually on Sunset Boulevard until about 2004. Oh, okay. So it, it didn't get there for a long time. But that when I moved out in the 80s, that was called Guitar Row, where, where Guitar Center is. So you had the Messes shop. You had uh, the Carvin shop. You had, um, like, a couple boutique stores. One called Guitars Are Us, which was very famous. Guitars Are Us sold, like, George Lynch's famous guitar. Sold Slash's famous guitars. And Guitars R Us was like 
it was like going into somebody's living room. It was like a carpeted room that had a bunch of amps in the middle and then like these vintage guitars just lay, literally laying around like leaning against the wall and just on stands and you could go in there and play a 59 Paul and it would be, you know, on sale for $800 because vintage guitars in the late night, nobody wanted that shit, you know, that's why Slash got a less ball because hey, get that thing for $700, you know? <laughs> Whereas like that guitar now is worth like twelve grand, twelve thousand dollars. You know, it's yeah. like hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so so, were, go, so going into a place like Guitar Center. Uh, so full disclosure here for everyone, I was in LA visiting Mark and we went into Guitar Center and walked around and looked at stuff and we went into the back room where they keep like the vintage stuff and the more expensive stuff. And I don't want to be a guitar player and play in a guitar shop in LA um, in, <laughs> in 2020, but I can't imagine going in and playing in a guitar shop in the early 90s. I mean, everybody's listening. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just got, I thought I was a guitar center. <laughs> I mean, that feels like more high, high pressure playing than being on stage is like playing on, on the guitar center shop floor. I think the trick is to know what you want to hear out of a guitar you're going to play. So you play the stuff you're comfortable with. Like, you know, I worked at Sam Nash for a few years uh, out in Canoga Park, which I, I connected with a lot of like, you know, quote unquote celebrity rock people. Like it was kind of crazy. Like some of the people I ran into, but the one thing, I noticed is guys would come in and they'd try new stuff. They'd be like, oh, I'm learning how to play this scale. And it was like, well, dude, you can already go. So why don't you do that on the guitar rather than trying to show us what you're learning? <laughs> but then, then add the nerve factor on because, you know, that, that, you know, to throw a couple stories in there, that guitar center in Hollywood, I've had some really neat times in there. I've, you know, I used to go there and get my strings, and one day I walk in there, and I'm walking around, and I'm like, holy shit, that looks like Stevie Wonder over there. And I'm like, I think it is, because there's like bodyguards, and next thing I know, he's in the keyboard department, which the way it was set up was you walk in, drums were to your left and upstairs, guitars were on the floor right in front of you, and then there was a walkway up to the, like a kind of a, a balcony, um, what do you call it, like a loft. And there was a keyboard at the end of the loft, and Stevie started playing and singing. And I, I swear to God, within like two minutes, there was like 30 of us around, right around the keyboard, just all watching him with our draws on the ground. And one of the crazier coincidences of all that is when I started dating my wife, we were talking about crazy, you know, being in L.A. and seeing, you know, crazy things. I'm going, oh, yeah, I saw, you know, Bert and Lonnie once, you know, and she's telling me, she goes, I got you beat on and all. She goes, I went into Guitar Center once and Stevie Wonder was playing and everybody gathered around and he just kept playing and singing. And I am like, shut up. I was there that day. Like, I didn't even know she was there that day, but we were both there and saw Stevie Wonder play at Guitar Center in Hollywood. <laughs> wow. So now do you, like, have your uh, anniversary and you only listen to Stevie Wonder or, or what's the story there? Yeah, no story. <laughs> Uh, we go to Bur we go to Birds, which is on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood, and it's like a locals kind of chicken joint. Basically, they have a great bar, and they serve this like rotisserie chicken with garlic mashed potatoes that are like to die for. And we went there on our first kind of date, and it's kind of the place that we love, you okay. know. So, 
that makes sense. Uh, so tell us about working at Sam Ash. You know, how, did you just walk in and apply? And then what was your job at Sam Ash? So the funny thing is, in the timeline of this all, Paul, this kind of lines up. So what happened was, I don't know if I mentioned quitting Bang Tango yet, but when I quit Bang Tango, I was playing in a blues band. The drummer of the blues band at the time, I was like, dude, I just quit Bang Tango. I don't really have any steady dough coming in. He goes, I'm the manager of Sam Ash out in, out in Canoga Park. He goes, you want to work? <laughs> I go, yeah, of course. So I worked there for like three years until I got my teaching thing established. Um, but I mean, the clientele, it was, it was the valley, you know, so you can't believe who lives out there. It's like I had some of my clients were Dean uh, DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots, Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses. I sold him tons of stuff. He was the coolest guy. Uh, Philip Maley, the singer for Earth, Wind & Fire. Colin Hay, the singer for Men at Work, was one of my steady guys. He used to come in all the time. Um, the singer for The Knack, who passed away, unfortunately, uh, Doug Feiger, who used to come in constantly. Elliot Easton, who I actually became really friendly with. Uh, Dave Grohl used to come in. And Taylor Hawkins used to come in our store so much that we'd be like, dude, got to take a day off. Like, he and I used to jam all the time. He'd come in, he'd sit on the drums, and he was like, he'd go, dude, you know Joe Walsh? And I'd go, okay. We play, and of course, I'm playing with him, but everybody's standing around the drums. I'm like, okay, I guess he is the drummer for the Foo Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was it was pretty insane, and I'm, I'm, there's tons more, and, and I can't even like John Mayall, um, Spencer Davis. Um, I mean, I saw John Mayall strings and picks. Like he asked me for recommendations. I'm like, dude, like you Clapton, like you started rock music in a way, you know. Like that. That was like, you know, one of the first rock guitar sounds out there, and that was him. And it's like, what are you doing in a Sam Ash in the Valley? <laughs> and all these guys, all these uh, famous people, were they, did they just come in as musicians and just want to look around and buy stuff? Or did they have entourages? Or, you know, I, I'm sure it depends on the person, but, but what's the story there? Great question. Great question. So, like, Blackie Lawless would come in, and he wanted the biggest discount he could get on Epiphones, because they were way better than Gibson's, in his opinion. So that was him. He'd come in and just say that stuff, you know? Brian McKnight, R&B singer, he'd come in and go, I hear PRSs are good. I go, oh, yeah, they're really good. He goes, well, give me the two most expensive ones. I'm just going to buy those. Okay, cool. And he'd buy them and walk out the store. It was like, it was like that crazy, you know? Um What's his name? Uh, Dean DeLeo. He would make me play. He, go, he goes, I don't like playing in music stores. He goes, but he was like interested in effects pedals. He'd call me on the phone. He'd be like, Mark, it's Dean. And I'd be like, Dean? I don't know. He goes, uh, SDP? And i go, oh, Dean, what's going on? And he'd go, you know, like he'd come in and he'd go, hey, can you play for me? You know, I like, I wanted that chorus and that distortion, but then I just want to mess with the knob, so just play for me. And he just, I'd just play. And it's like super cool, you know. Izzy Stradlin was the opposite. He'd come in. And he go, dude, I'm going to go in the back corner. Can you set me up with an amp? And I'm just going to ask you to bring me guitars. And he'd always buy like $5,000 worth. But it was like crazy. Like he would just sit, seriously, like people would come in and go, hmm, dude, still playing back there? Okay, because no one knew who Izzy was. Like he looked so different. He'd come in in like his sweats and T-shirt. And I knew, I, he actually came to me because I had a friend who was producing the Juju Hounds and said, my buddy works at Sam Ash, go see him, he'll hook you up. And so he 
I, I hook him up and I, he bought an SG, a Marshall Stack, a Les Paul, Strats. Like, I can't believe the amount of stuff the dude bought. Wow. <laughs> were you making commissions on all this stuff? That sounds like a pretty good job if, if that's the case. Yeah, it just wasn't that steady. You know, I mean, like the week that he would come in, yeah, I'd have a nice check, but then it would be back to minimum wage basically after that. So, you know, Christmas time is when you hope to make, you know, make make the money working in a music store, you know. But the problem is, is, you know, as you probably know, a lot of people treat music stores like used cars. Yeah. So they come in and they're like, okay, so it says twelve hundred dollars, but what can I get it for? What's cost on it? You know, it's like holy shit, you know. So that that was the part that made me end up quitting. <laughs> So then let's take that, and you mentioned it, um, you got out of retail um, and moved into lessons. So obviously, if anybody listens to this podcast, they know that I take lessons from you. Um, and my honest feedback for anybody that's interested in taking lessons from Mark Tremalgia is that he is honestly the most patient person in the world, uh, even remotely, uh, at least for me, because sometimes I can't play anything and sometimes I can't describe exactly what I want him to teach me. And, and Mark is just the master at explaining everything. So, so did you just like start teaching and immediately know how to do it? What was your development there? So what happened was um, a lot of times they would have you rotate shifts where you have to watch the front door. Basically, you just have to greet people, and then when they leave, you have to look at their receipt and stamp it. And when I go up there, I bring a guitar, and I, I play. I, I always joked, I call it the guitar store blues. I just go like. And so people would come in and they go, hey, can you show me how to do that? And it's really kind of what. What happened, and I was also, at that time, I got the blues band I was playing with, with the drummer, so we were working like three nights a week, so I was still, I was doing okay, you know, and then adding the lessons with Sam Ash, and all of a sudden I had like three incomes coming in, and I'm like, this is great, and then I got into the Chambers Brothers, which was a whole other, you know, whole other interesting year and a half, um, getting to play with them and do, do like arenas, which was the first time I ever got to step on those stages, so it's kind of insane. Right. And so, did you teach at Sam Match, or were you, were you going to people's houses, or what was the setup? I, I did in-home lessons. So I would say, you know, like, give me your address, and I'll come to your house, and I'll do a half hour for 25 bucks. And as I was working, there was a guitar teacher who came in the store, and he goes, dude, he goes, well, I don't know what you're doing with half hours driving to people's houses, but you're not, you're losing gas money and like it's a waste. He goes, do hour minimums, charge 50 an hour, and that's the only way to go. And I, I had, like at that point, I had two or three students and they were all like, sure, no problem. And then I started getting students. At one point, I had, I had like a 13, 14 person waiting list when Guitar Hero was out because everybody wanted to learn. And so I was like, you know what, I don't have time for Sam Ash. I'm doing, six lessons, seven lessons a day, literally six days a week. And like some I'm doing every other week. So I'd have one day where I do like 10 lessons on a Monday and then Tuesday I do like two or three, but then Wednesday I do like eight and then Thursday I do like six. And so it was like, it got really crazy and I was always driving around. I mean, and I, I had some, you know, like actor students, I had some director students, I had, uh, like, I taught Joel Surnow's kids, he was the creator and director of 24, which a lot of people 
remember wow. that TV show. So the show was like big and happening, and I'm going to his house like every day, and he's talking to me like, bro. It was really funny. <laughs> Do you, do you find teaching to be fulfilling? I know it's different from being on stage and having fans pulling on your hair, but is it fulfilling in in, in maybe a, a different way? Well, absolutely. I, you know, I think, honestly, the teaching was the thing that really taught me guitar, as crazy as that is, because I, would, I, I knew enough to teach, but then I'd go, hey, so how do I use harmonic minor? And I was like, oh... Well, here's the scale, and then give me a week to go home and uh, just figure this out. And I thought, oh, okay, so this is how it works, you know. And so it started teaching me the importance of scales and arpeggios and chords and how it's all the same thing. And the, the trickiest thing, the thing that actually took me the most was rhythmically growing up. My mom was a singer. I played marching band. So I always had metronomes around. So rhythm for me just was innate, like in the fact that, I didn't have to think about like the always tapping my foot to go like it was the only way I knew how to play. So I assumed everybody I taught was that way. And I realized ways in that it's like, oh, my God, people don't like because it is so hard to get the notes. You know, if you got to play, there's a lot to think about. So trying to keep that in rhythm as well. But the trick is, is putting the rhythm to it is what makes it easier to memorize and learn. But it's also hard to teach people that putting the rhythm to it is what makes it easier to memorize and learn. <laughs> right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, last last question on this, and that is, as you move through the years and you're and you're giving lessons. Is it a lot of, can you teach me this song? Whatever song is on the radio, is it, can you teach me this song? And then it changes from year to year or month to month. So is it, does that happen? I presume it does. Um, and then what's the most commonly requested song that, that people ask you to, to play? <laughs> really? That's the that most one, common? That, I would say that one and like that that one is definitely like I hear Sandman's pretty easy. So that but you know, I mean I, I, I like to start beginners off with you know, I mean I know it's like cliche, but it really has everything you need. Huh. You don't start them on Ingve or, or something? They gotta, they gotta do that first lesson or you're out. <laughs> um, like you said, I'm very patient to a point. <laughs> so I, I just want to repeat to everyone, um, all of Mark's contact info is in is in the podcast information. So I, I strongly recommend if you have any interest at all to, to hit them up. Even if you've been playing for a while, um, there's always something new to learn. And honestly, I think he's a, he, he's a great teacher. And I have one last lesson here before, before I let you go, at least for, for this episode. And Question or What? Question or lesson? Question. One last, one last question. Oh. And, and that is, in L.A., what were you doing when the O.J. thing happened? 
I was watching the Knicks and the Houston uh, Rockets on NBC. It was it was really interesting to me because we were sitting in our apartment. I had my roommate uh, Paul Barrett who played in Mariah, and we had a bunch of friends over because he was a huge Knicks fan. And I didn't I like basketball. I didn't really care either way with the Knicks and the Rockets in the finals. Um, but we're watching the game, and this other buddy comes over and goes, "Dude, I, I think they're like going to arrest OJ soon." And and to, to back up and add more of the story. I had a friend in town from Connecticut. I can't remember who it was, but a lot of times LA is so expansive, you drive around a lot. So the night that the murder happened, I actually drove up Bundy. I didn't see anything, there was nothing weird, but I actually drove on Bundy that the night that that murder wow. happened. Like, it's, like the next day when it was on the news, my buddy is like, weren't we in Santa Monica? I'm like, not only were we in Santa Monica, we actually drove on Bundy because I cut from Santa Monica up to Sunset on Bundy to take Sunset back to Hollywood. Um, so yeah, we're watching the game and the funniest thing is that we're into the game and everything and in the little box in the corner picture in picture was the OJ chase and then next thing you know, OJ chase is the whole screen and the game is a little picture in the corner and we're like, what is going on? So I remember we watched it all night, we watched it till like, you know, they got to the house and the kid came outside and we were all like, you know, we were, we were kids, we were drinking our ass off, having a blast, laughing about the whole thing, like how insane is this? Like... O.J. Simpson, this star football player, is like, you know, about to be arrested for for murder. <laughs> and was it was that like all consuming in L.A. for for a time? All of the the O.J. stuff. Uh, I would say so. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of talk. I mean, I can remember I, at that point I was still working a telemarketing job, and I remember everybody like the next day that was all anybody could talk about was you know. What's going to happen? Holy crap. Did OJ do it? No, he didn't do it. There's no way he did it. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, it just <laughs> seemed to be like the talk of the town. And I mean, I, I, I even remember when they read the verdict, you know, I mean, half the half the staff cheered and half the staff was like, oh, my God, like they just let a murderer go. <laughs> you know? Did you ever meet OJ? I didn't. No, I never have met OJ. I drove. I drove by the house though. I drove like because it was all on the news. I found Rockingham. I'm like, I know where Rockingham is. So we went down there, and my buddy who was still in town from Connecticut. We drove up, and like, I got up there before they blocked it all off. So I was actually able to drive by his house and then do a U-turn and come back by the house. But I mean, there was like news crews everywhere. There was police everywhere. But it was like I saw it. I saw the fence, the house, all that stuff. The gate that he jumped over. You know, never seen Kato Kato. <laughs> crazy alright buddy Yo. thanks uh, thanks so much as always um, please everyone who's listening thanks uh, thanks very much for listening please like and subscribe to the podcast and we will talk to you again soon thanks Mark thank you Paul that was a blast